You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Heartland Politics show and podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson. And today, my topic is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, You know, uh, there's been many uh, hundreds of books, maybe thousands of books written about FDR, mostly concerning his efforts to lead the United States out of the Great Depression or leading us to victory in World War II. But few, if any, books that I'm aware of, and I've read quite a few of them, have examined a crucial period in his life when he was stricken by polio. Most of the time, this is kind of glossed over in perhaps a chapter or a couple paragraphs. But my guest today has written a book, a very important book, whose major focus is this period in FDR's life and its crucial role in how he led the country during unprecedented economic times. This is a great gift idea if you're still uh, wondering about a topic to get loved ones coming up with the holiday season. It's not about politics solely. It's about human uh, perseverance. Um, my, my guest's name is Jonathan Darman. He's a former uh, national correspondent with Newsweek. And the book, uh, which has just come out, is called Becoming FDR, the personal crisis that made a president. Jonathan, thank you for taking the time today. Thanks so much for having me on. I think it was an interesting story on how you came to write this book because it didn't sound like it was your original your original goal top for topic. Uh, that's exactly right. You know, I set out to write a biography of FDR, which, as your introduction noted, is is kind of a crazy idea in a certain sense, because there have been so many books written about Franklin Roosevelt. But I was interested in taking a new look at FDR's life because I wanted to look for what it could offer us uh, on a pretty simple question, which is when times are tough in this country, when we're experiencing national crisis and national trauma, how does a president form a bond with the American people in a way that brings them hope? that gives them meaningful hope that and, and a belief that things are not only going to be better in the future, but that they're going to be able to come out of tough times better off than they were before. And FDR is, I think, the best example we have of that in the, in the American presidency, certainly in the 20th century with his leadership of the country through the Depression and World War II. Um, so anyway, so I started off working on this book, and I thought that it would focused chiefly on his presidency. And I thought I would deal with his experience with polio in, you know, maybe half a chapter of backstory, because I thought everyone knows FDR had polio. And everyone knows that, you know, when he was president, he sort of hid the effects of his disability from the public and the press had sort of a code of silence around that. But when I really sort of dug into it, to that question about hope in FDR, I realized that the polio story was something completely different from what I had previously thought. Um, he, uh, it was really the experience of getting polio in midlife. He, he was infected with the polio virus at age 39 uh, that forced FDR to develop the qualities of character 
the sort of empathy that made him such a great president, the strategic thinking, even the oratorical presence that he's so well remembered for, all of those things came out of his experience with polio in the middle of life. Um, and really what sort of drove home the message for me was when I you know, got into the archives and started reading letters that other people who'd had polio wrote to FDR starting in the earliest days of his illness. Uh, one letter that particularly struck out, struck me uh, was from another polio survivor, someone who had been completely paralyzed by the disease and had spent seven years in a hospital uh, recovering from the effects of polio. And that person talked to FDR about the ways that rage and shame had impeded his recovery. And his advice was, Mr. Roosevelt, whatever you do, don't worry, it won't help any. And I read those words and I could see a clear path to the man who then goes to the country and says, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Yeah, that that's that's so interesting how he he, he changed a lot of his personality as a result of this. And empathy is one of those things. But you might share with our, our listeners a little bit, kind of a short version of FDR before polio. Uh, so we get in our minds kind of who he was and, and how how it differed uh, with the person he became afterwards. That's right. I think a lot of people forget that FDR actually had a whole career in politics before he got polio at age 39. Yeah. So he was born in 1882 into the Roosevelt family, which was even then a storied American family with roots in the earliest days of New York uh, State. Uh, and his famous fifth cousin was Teddy Roosevelt, who by the time FDR was in college, became president and was sort of the most famous, celebrated uh, politician in the country and one of the most famous people in the world. And FDR, in his college days, got the idea that he wanted to be exactly like his famous cousin. He wanted to follow his career path and end up with his career objective in the presidency. And he set about doing that pretty methodically. He had a lot of jobs that were similar to the ones that Teddy Roosevelt had. He went to the New York State Legislature. Um, he uh, was uh, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, the number two uh, job in the Navy Department under President Wilson. That was the job that Teddy Roosevelt had had during the Spanish-American War when he really emerged uh, as a national phenomenon. Um, and FDR even got made the vice presidential candidate in 1920 on the Democratic ticket. And he got that by sort of doing a really good Teddy Roosevelt impersonation. He was handsome. He was athletic. He was sort of very active. He got the job on the Democratic ticket in 1920, in large part because he made a big impression on people at the convention by jumping over rows of chairs and sort of starting a fight and, you know, giving the sense that he was a young man in a hurry. Um, but I think when you look at that person, which I did for a while when I was working on this book, you realize that, you know, he had a lot of sort of outward strengths, but the inward qualities were not fully developed. He was shallow in a lot of ways. And if he had just sort of kept on that trajectory for his life um, and not really ever experienced, you know, massive hardship, um, he might have ended up, if he'd been really lucky, he might have ended up in the presidency someday, but he never would have been a great president. He needed that experience of suffering to really remake his character. And that sets, sets the stage for him contracting polio, which for a lot of our, you know, people under a certain age, th there's not an awareness of how big polio was then. I had an aunt that had polio and was in braces her entire life. 
she was older, obviously. But um, I, I think it's important to put that in the context for our listeners who may not be aware when they hear polio, it's not nearly the, the disease that, that it was then. That's right. And particularly, you know, he got polio in the summer of 1921. Uh, polio had been around for, for a long time at that point, but it had really been well known in the United States only for about 20 years. And it was the subject of just universal fear. There had been these epidemics, particularly in American cities, where, you know, you would have children taking gravely ill, like overnight, and, and losing and being paralyzed, and in some cases dying. Um, there had been an epidemic in New York City that killed 2,000 people in 1916. So when FDR gets polio in the summer of 1929, and he gets that diagnosis, it's about as terrifying a diagnosis as you can get, because the effects of it were well known, but what you did to treat it, what were the best things to sort of rehabilitate from it, that was all a mystery. And I sort of have come to think of it as sort of like the first few months of the COVID-19 pandemic, when we when people were, you know, washing their groceries and stuff like that, but they didn't really know anything about how the how the virus was transmitted. It was sort of like that with polio for decades, that combination of extreme fear and extreme mystery at the same time. Yeah, I I got to visit the Roosevelt uh home and in, in museum uh in New York, and I I'll never forget uh to being taken on a tour and they showed uh, a little road that went from the highway back to the home uh with trees on each side and they talked about what you mentioned in the book how to overcome polio uh he was on braces and walked back and forth and that was a long ways um it, just the, the 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 i guess the single-minded determination it would have been easy to to not battle this but the spirit he showed in overcoming this uh, and and is is really quite remarkable. And again, it's one of the reasons this book isn't a political book. It's got some great politics in it, which I hope we'll talk about. But this is more about just human human perseverance and overcoming. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think your point is is exactly right. It would have been really easy for him to just sort of settle into a life as an invalid, as they would have put it at the time. Um, and there were a lot of people around him who were encouraging him to do that. His mother, uh, Sarah Delano Roosevelt, who, if you read the book, as I know you have, is just this incredibly formidable presence. She's one of these women from history who, if she'd been born in another period in time, she'd be, you know, CEO of a Fortune 500 company or ruling the world or something like that. Uh, but she, she was uh, after FDR uh, took ill um, and was recovering from polio and was paralyzed below the waist. She was this voice for sort of saying, "Okay, now give up." on this idea of a return to politics. Just come home to the family home in Hyde Park, New York, and live a sort of comfortable life as an invalid and a country squire. He could have chosen that. Um, interestingly, the one person who was really instrumental in helping him to see another way was his chief political advisor, who was named Louis Howe. And Louis Howe had been with FDR since the earliest days of his political career. He had sort of spotted uh, Franklin Roosevelt as someone who had the makings of a great politician. Um, and, you know, I think today we think about political consultants as the most, you know, ultimately cynical beasts around. Um, and, and most of them, we think, you know, if the, if the candidate they, that they'd bet a lot of their careers on suddenly 
took ill and was and was knocked out of the action for a long period of time, they'd very quickly start looking for someone else. Louis Howe did the exact opposite. He moved into the Roosevelt's house after FDR got sick because he wanted to devote himself so completely to helping FDR recover. And he and this gets to your point about the sort of broader human story here. He understood that if FDR was going to recover, he needed a vision that was practical and real of what the better future future for him looked like. Um, that was sort of informed by, by Howe's conversations with FDR's doctors. Um, and in the early weeks after FDR uh, came home from the hospital in the fall of 1921, Louis Howe goes to him and he says, look, I not only believe that you're going to return to politics, I believe that you're going to be president of the United States someday. And I've got a detailed plan about how it's going to work. It's going to happen over a number of years. You're going to spend a lot of that time focused on your recovery and rehabilitation, but we're going to find ways to keep your name in, the, in front of the public. And he lays out this whole detailed plan to FDR, and FDR's response is, when do we start? <laughs> You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK, Quad Cities NPR. This is your host, Robin Johnson. My guest today is Jonathan Darman. Uh, he's the author of an outstanding new book called Becoming FDR, The Personal Crisis That Made a President. If you think you know a lot about FDR, think again. I think there's some insights in this book that are totally different that may surprise you and enlighten you and inspire you. Um, Jonathan is a former correspondent for Newsweek. He also wrote a book, um, the author of a book called Landslide, LBJ and Ronald Reagan at the Dawn of a New America. Sounds interesting. I'm gonna have to put that on my list too. Uh, we've been talking a little bit of, already about uh, uh, pre-polio FDR and uh, his, his struggles with the disease. And uh, Jonathan's outlined how you know, the difference between polio as we see it now and how it was back then, very, very different. Uh, I was just going to ask, and you went went right into it, the key role played by two individuals, Louis Howe's one, but Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, we know, of course, about FDR's affair. We know, uh, you know, the, the, the difficult the strain that put on both of these individuals. But she plays a significant role, too, in enabling the Louis Howe strategy of, uh, of, for FDR rising up to become a viable national political figure again. That's right. Um, you know, the the work that I spent researching Eleanor's story in this in this period was um, incredibly rewarding for me personally because, in a lot of ways, I think the transformation that you see in her life is even more dramatic than the one you see in Franklin Roosevelt's life. So my book begins a couple of years before FDR gets polio. Um, and at that point, Eleanor Roosevelt was in her mid-30s. She had been through this experience you just alluded to, where their marriage was completely sort of torn apart by his having this very public affair with a woman who had been Eleanor's social secretary, Lucy Mercer. And that left Eleanor feeling humiliated and betrayed. But in a broader sense, she sort of didn't have a sense of purpose in her life. And she didn't have any sense that she had anything to contribute. She didn't feel at all that the public sphere was a place where she belonged. Um, the story that really sticks out to me that, that illustrates that is in the 1920 campaign when FDR was running as vice president, a reporter found Eleanor um, and asked her what she thought about the issue of women's suffrage. And 1920, women's suffrage was, you know, that was the first year that women could vote nationally under the 19th Amendment, and it was a big topic of the day. And Eleanor Roosevelt's response was, 
I don't have a strong opinion either way. Personally, I'm focused on my husband and my children. You know, that's not what we think of when we think of Eleanor Roosevelt. And in just a few years time from that, she's not only going to be having opinions about whether should be in women should be involved in politics, she obviously thinks they should, she herself is going to be one of the most consequential women in either of the two political parties with an agenda set and, and a vision that's completely independent of her husband's. And what was so interesting was in a lot of ways, it's polio that makes that happen. While Franklin was off pursuing that path that Louis Howe laid out for him, really focused on his recovery, there was this need for someone to be representing the Roosevelt family in the public sphere. And Eleanor Roosevelt stepped into that void, you know, at first kind of gingerly, but very quickly, she discovers that sort of the big world of politics and ideas is the place that she was always meant to be. Um, and so, you know, you really see that happen in her. And you also see this transformation in their marriage where they're remaking it into a new kind of union that is based on this sort of shared mission that they both have to help others. And that's made possible, I think, because Eleanor can see the ways that polio changes Franklin Roosevelt and makes him more in touch with the suffering of people who have less than he does. And she really can, comes to believe in what he can give to the world. I thought it was fascinating, the role of Warm Springs in his rehabilitation and water. And he, he tried several things from uh, some medical professionals, which as you outlined, may not have been necessarily the best, but the role of water and Warm Springs almost transforms him into, he calls himself Dr. Roosevelt. And this role you talk about, this symbiotic relationship with other people that is is so powerful and in, in the, the give and take between these folks and, and FDR. That's right. I mean, I think I think Warm Springs is in a lot of ways the heart of this story and, and of the book that I've I've written. Um, you know, he goes there in the fall of 1924, three years after he first took sick with polio. And by that point, he was sort of looking for a miracle um, because the conventional wisdom on polio was that muscle function that hadn't returned after one to two years was probably not going to come back. And by that point, three years out, he still hadn't gotten the ability to walk on his own unaided. But he hears about Warm Springs, where it's the sort of ancient spa waters in Georgia um, that have these curative properties that have given other people who've been longtime paralysis victims the ability to walk again. So he hears about this and he's immediately sort of entranced. Then he goes down there and I think he had envisioned it as a sort of spa resort. And he comes and he finds that the place is like really run down um, and not, not really in any shape to be receiving people. But he does get in the water. And right away, he has two thoughts. The first is, wow, this really is magical water. It does feel different. And the second thought is, it's a shame that it's only for me. And that's the beginning what, of what I think is the real miracle of Warm Springs. It sort of opens up this tremendous capacity for empathy that he has that, that is gonna allow him to do great things. And, and you know, very quickly, you see him sort of focusing on that when he's talking about Warm Springs. He starts writing letters to other polio patients where he says, you really should come to Warm Springs, Georgia. I think it could help you. Um, in, in a short amount of time, he's, he, he actually, invests a large 
portion of his personal fortune to buy Warm Springs and turn it into what he thinks a proper rehabilitative colony should be. And he gets very involved on a granular level. I mean, when I was when I was researching the book, I, I read medical reports that would describe like sort of in detail the progress that individual patients made saying, you know, this person came with the use of these muscles, now he has the use of these muscles. And I would read down at the bottom of the report the name of the person who had written it, and it was Franklin D. Roosevelt. And I think, you know, it, it was it was bittersweet in a lot of ways because he's taking such pride in other people's improvement, even though he was failing to make that same kind of improvement himself. But what Warm Springs really gives him ultimately is in a lot of ways, for at least in terms of his presidency, much more valuable. It's this intimate knowledge of what people need when they're going through hard times to make them sort of pull themselves together and pull themselves out of out of out of misery and find and find real hope. That's a great segue because I noted how he talked about the loss of dignity. And 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 you can see as as I'm reading this the direct line between that of of people suffering from polio or other diseases or or and and the need of people thrown out of work to have yeah. something to restore their dignity. That's right. I mean, it's it's very simple. Like in the case of Warm Springs, it was things like he knew that, you know, a lot of these places that polio patients went to seeking water therapy, they would be in these embarrassing circumstances where they needed to change into, into you know, bathing suits. Um, and there was nowhere where they could change or be changed without people seeing them and seeing the full extent of their disability. So he put a lot of thought into how do we design really nice changing rooms at Warm Springs for people. And that seems like a really small thing, but just having that sort of, um, you know, attention to dignity means that there's this moment of seeking water therapy is not going to be an opportunity for exposure and vulnerability. It's going to be about care. And I think that sort of focus on dignity, you're exactly right, transfers exactly into the New Deal. He was really sort of lit up when he was president by programs that put people to work. And it wasn't so much about the precise economic theory. It was this idea that people who've been out of a job, who haven't been able to put food on the table, want some sense of their own worth. So he got animated by programs, programs like the Civilian Conservation Corps, um, the Works Progress Administration, where it's really just about making sure that able-bodied people are able to get work. Yeah, it's it's uh, and because he was he was, you know, th there was a criticism of him that he really didn't have any specifics, as you said, but th he didn't let the specifics get in the way of, of uh, you know, his determination that progressive government should have a, a strong role in guaranteeing this. And that's perhaps what set, set him apart from other folks at the time. That's right. Um, you know, there's there's a famous FDR quote uh, from the speech where he sort of laid out the New Deal for the first time where he says, try something. If it fails, admit it plainly, but above all, try something. That was definitely the animating spirit of the New Deal, which is, you know, let's let's just do something now and see if it works and learn from it. And that came directly from his experience with polio, which was this understanding that if you're if you're really facing something tough, you want a sense that there that that you're that you're experimenting and that you're really actively looking for a solution that's gonna that's gonna find your way out of that position of hopelessness. And that leads directly to his use of the term the forgotten man. 
which was very powerful in, in his speeches and, and campaigns, of course. We have time for probably um, uh, one or two more questions. We'll see how it goes. There's so much here. We're not going to get to everything. Uh, but I, I was struck by the little anecdote you told of his uh, quoting a, a priest, I believe it was, and how hum humility was the greatest of virtues. Uh, would you expand on that a little bit, please? That actually came from Francis Perkins, um, who was uh, his labor secretary for the entire time um, that he was president. She's an amazing story herself. But she had known um, both, she'd known FDR for decades, going back to his days as a young politician. So she knew that pre-polio FDR that we were talking about. Um, and, and she said, essentially, um, you know, she would like to think that FDR, if he'd never gotten polio, um, would have been able to do all the great things that he did as president. But she didn't believe that he could because she had had this conversation with, with a priest um, who explained to her that, as you said, humility is the greatest of, of the virtues. And I think the quote is, and if we don't learn it of our own accord, the Lord will surely teach it to us. And that's what she saw as happening in the experience of polio was FDR being sort of wrenched out of his comfortable life and forced to see what it means to really suffer and to really uh, sort of need a, a, a better vision for how you, how you can get out of that. We have about one minute left, Jonathan. I just, uh, again, there, there's this book does have some politics in it and what is in there is very valuable for today's leaders. If, if there's one bit of advice or, or, or example from FDR that, that you learned out of this that could be most useful for today's leaders, what would that be? I guess I would think of it almost in terms of advice for all of us who choose our leaders. Um, because, you know, hope is this word that we hear all the time in our politics, that we hear it so much that it sort of has lost all our meaning, all meaning. Uh, but hope is also the thing that we need from our politicians. And so I think, you know, when we hear politicians talking about hope, FDR's story reminds us we should ask, when did they need hope in their own lives and what did they learn from it? You know, I think about this moment, I come back to it a lot, um, you know, when FDR was running for president in 1932, uh, accepting the Democratic nomination for the presidency, he he got up there to, to, to accept the nomination and he said to the country, out of every crisis, mankind rises with some share of greater knowledge, of higher decency, and of purer purpose. And, you know, I read those words today sometimes, and I think, gosh, I hope that's true. Uh, because, you know, we see crisis all around us um, in today's world, but it's hard sometimes to see the greater knowledge and the higher decency and the purer purpose. But if you think about when FDR was saying those words in the summer of 1932, that's the depths of the Great Depression. Um, you know, as, as dark a moment as the Republic has faced in a lot of ways. And he said those words to the country and people believed him. And they believed him because he believed what he was saying. And he believed it because he had lived it in his own life. Jonathan Darman, uh, author of Becoming FDR, The Personal Crisis That Made a President. Uh, outstanding book. And again, for our listeners, uh, uh, don't, don't, be, don't be thinking because it's about FDR. It's all about politics. It's not. Politics has a strong role, but this is a book about the human spirit more than anything. And it's a perfect book for this season. 
Jonathan, thank you so much for being our guest today on Heartland Politics. Thanks so much for having me on. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK, Quad Cities, NPR. Thank you.